Tales from the Vault, Episode 5, The Leddington Incident, by J.B. Priestley, narrated by David Sweeney Bear. The Leddington Incident The train was quieter now. This was the moment, Cobthorn thought. He leaned forward and turned to knock the ash off his cigar. As a matter of fact, he said, still looking at the ashtray, I happen to be the minister in charge of that particular department. Are you indeed? said the man. There was nothing more than the merest politeness in his tone. Either he was not impressed, or he was putting up an impudent bluff. He was a plumpish fellow with a large pale face, about as distinguished as the crumpled suit he was wearing. He was English, Cobthorne had decided, and might be a professional man or a civil servant on the assistant secretary level. Whatever he was, he certainly did not look as if he met cabinet ministers every day. Yes, I'm Sir George Cobthorne, and he stared rather hard across the compartment, still bright with the afternoon sun. He knew he had not been able to announce himself without a touch of self-importance, and this increased his irritation. Just because he had finished his notes for tonight's speech, he told himself, he need not have begun an unrewarding talk with this fellow. The man merely nodded. He had no fussy mannerisms, and appeared never to waste any energy on unnecessary movements and words, a characteristic that Cobthorne had never been able to acquire. Another reason why the man was so irritating. We are holding a big meeting tonight in Leddington, Cobthorne heard himself announcing. I'm making a rather important statement of policy. The man smiled and nodded again. I can't anticipate that statement, of course, Cobthorne continued, determined now to arouse some interest. But I don't mind telling you that it represents a change of policy that— uh, will make a good deal of difference to all our lives, as the press will be telling us tomorrow. And he produced that wide, friendly grin, which almost automatically followed any reference he ever made to the press. The man smiled, again out of mere politeness, and Copthorne knew that if he had told him he proposed to keep a few fowls, or had bought a new set of tyres for his car, the fellow's reaction would have been the same. There was no escaping the fact. In this fellow's opinion, what Cobthorne said or did was not important at all. Really, this was infuriating. Cobthorne wished he had kept quiet, but now that the damage was done, for an injury to his morale might conceivably affect his speech tonight, he felt he must come out of this encounter with some victory on his side. Moreover, the fellow deserved a snub. I'm afraid I'm boring you, said Cobthorne with savage irony. We political chaps are apt to forget there are still some people who prefer not to trouble themselves about their country's affairs. <laughs> and he ended with a short, sarcastic laugh. Not a very adult performance, he realized, but something had to be done. The man seemed to be looking at him from a great distance. This calm, remote regard made Cobthorne feel small, fussy, foolish, which was intolerable as well as being plainly unreasonable. 
After all, he was George Cobthorne, a member of Her Majesty's government, responsible for a vast public department, a familiar figure to millions. Who was this fellow? Well, that was the line to take. Are you、uh, a native of Leddington? Cobthorne inquired with a touch of patronage. No, I am like you, came the reply smilingly. I am going there to address a meeting, only it's not a big meeting, but a very small meeting, perhaps six people. This was more like it. Ah, we'll do better than that, I fancy, in the old Beaconsfield Hall. With luck, probably between two and three thousand. This time the other did not smile, but merely nodded, gave Copthorne a sharp look, then picked up his book. No comments, demanded Copthorne with an edge on his voice. Must I make a comment? It was more annoying than deliberate rudeness, as if a patient adult were addressing a child. Copthorne was tired, for he had been kept in the house the previous night, and he was anxious about tonight's meeting, so he found his temper hard to control. Really, my dear sir, he began explosively, it doesn't matter to me whether you make any comment or not, only I find your attitude rather strange in an educated man. These are difficult times, you know. We're faced with some very urgent problems. We are indeed. Said the man mildly, but you and I may not be facing the same problems. What may seem important to you may seem of no importance to me. Possibly, Cobthorne was aggressive, but I hope, for all our sakes, you are not going to tell your meeting that. Better abandon it and come to mine. <laughs> He gave a short, sarcastic laugh again. Already the mills and warehouses of Leddington were cutting off some of the daylight, and the train was reducing speed. In a few minutes they would be there. No need to say any more. Cobthorne began fastening his dispatch case. Then he stood up. The other man was standing too, and now their eyes met on this new level at a much closer range. Cobthorne did not propose to be outstared. He was used to handling all sorts of men. But he found himself blinking. There was something curiously luminous about this fellow's stare. The carriage was darker, of course, for now Leddington's grimy station was closing round them. These six people I hope to talk to, the man was saying, are at least struggling to be alive. So are the two or three thousand I shall talk to, Cobthorne heard himself saying. I am afraid not. Said the other quite calmly, "Most people in Leddington, like most people elsewhere, are either asleep or dead." Cobthorne had meant to turn away, to reach for his bag, but this pronouncement was really too much. "That seems to me a most stupid and arrogant statement," he cried angrily, and then tried to turn away, but found that he couldn't. "Very well." Came the voice, as if remotely from behind the stare that was now a luminous haze. You will see. And then they were in the station, and by the time Cobthorne had taken down his bag, hat, and light overcoat, the man had gone. Clearly, he was some sort of crank, probably earning a dubious and seedy living, going about the country talking nonsense to little groups of fellow cranks.
He might, too, in order to further his hocus-pocus, have developed some hypnotic trick with that luminous stare. Cobthorn made an impatient sound as he put his things together. He would see, would he? Well, it served him right for wasting his time chattering to the fellow when he ought to have been reading his notes. Porter, sir? It came in the thick Leddington accent. Yes, take this bag and coat. I'll carry the dispatch case. And then an extraordinary coincidence, and one that would make a good story out of this encounter. He noticed that the porter, an oldish man, really did look as if he were moving in a trance. You could, in fact, not unreasonably have described him as being asleep. Not altogether astonishing, though. Too many of these fellows nowadays were half asleep, a fact that explained many of our economic problems. It might be worth while saying as much somewhere at the beginning of his speech. A good press quote there, possibly a headline. Two or three photographers were on the platform waiting for him, and with them a small group in which he recognised, after a moment, old Douglas Jerdon, the local party chairman, and Morrow, the agent for the Leddington area, and one of the best of the party's provincial men. Before he had time to exchange more than half a dozen words with old Jerdon, they were photographed together. Then he had to say something to the reporters, not a bright bunch, and it was not until they had gone across to the Midland Hotel, where a suite had been booked for him, that he had any chance of properly observing Jerdon and Morrow. But then it came, in one horrible flash, just as they were settling down in his sitting-room. Old Jerdon was not merely old and foolish. He was dead. Probably he had been dead for years. Of course he could still move and speak, as soon as he stopped moving and speaking he would be laid out and buried. Nevertheless, as Copthorne saw quite clearly, he was dead. After making this shocking discovery, Copthorne found it difficult to talk to old Jerdon, and after fumbling around for something to say, he turned to Morrow, whom he remembered as a smart little agent and organiser. "'I hear you're making a good job of the local organisations he said. They were talking about you the other day at Central Office. All bouquets, no brickbats. That's what I like to hear, Sir George, said Morrow. But I'm lucky up here. Got some very useful keen types. How's it looking for the meeting tonight? Couldn't be better, Sir George. All the tickets gone for the area seats and front circle, and my stewards are expecting a nice crowd even up in the gallery. Just been round to test the mic and speakers and to make sure the platform looks all right. Not been overdoing it, have you, Morrow? inquired Cobthorne, frowning at him. Who, me? In one sense, I suppose I'm always overdoing it, said Morrow, because I start in the morning and generally finish around midnight. But I'm feeling fine. Why, Sir George? Cobthorne did not know what to reply to that. You cannot tell a man, especially a keen, smart fellow like Morrow, that he seems to be asleep. It was not that the usual keenness and smartness were missing. They were there all right, but they seemed to belong to a man who was talking and gesticulating in his sleep. I don't know what we'd do without Morrow here. This came from Jerdon, but the remark did not bring old Jerdon back to life. No, he was dead and Morrow was asleep. 
Any sitting-room in the Midland Hotel, Leddington, is a perfect setting for a chat with a dead man and a somnambulist. Cobthorne glanced round the chill and melancholy apartment, and fortunately caught sight of a bell. "'What about a drink?' he cried with false heartiness. "'A little early, perhaps, but I had a late night at the house. No, I'll ring. What will you have?' The waiter who took his order was a very young man, who appeared to have just arrived from some eastern Mediterranean country. He also appeared to be soundly asleep. Like Morrow, his eyes were open, and he moved easily enough, but Copthorne knew at once that he was asleep. "'Now listen to me,' cried Copthorne, after he had given the order. "'I don't want you to bring these drinks. Never mind why, but I don't. Tell them to send some other waiter.' "'Something wrong with that chap, Sir George?' asked Morrow when the young waiter had gone. "'Yes, if you must know,' Copthorne was curt. "'Seemed to me more than half asleep.' "'Lots of these fellows are nowadays,' old Jordan muttered, still dead. "'Plenty of life in Leddington, though,' said Morrow, without any sign of waking up himself. "'I've been surprised.' "'Well, I hope I'll be surprised.' Copthorne heard himself growling. He was beginning to take a sharp dislike to the place. A few minutes later the surprise arrived. It arrived with a waiter who brought the drinks. He was an elderly man, careful and slow in his movements, but still bright-eyed. And, to Copthorne's instant relief, he was both alive and awake. "'That's better!' cried Copthorne, as if welcoming the drinks. But it was not better. The next moment, as the waiter presented the bill to be signed, Copthorne felt at once that this old fellow was much too alive and awake. There was mocking knowledge in his bright glance, which seemed to say, Yes, I'm all right, but how many more are you going to find like me, alive and awake? Somehow he knew that old Jordan was dead and Morrow was asleep, and knew that Copthorne knew. Copthorne had to say something to him, the first thing that came into his head. "'Are you going to be on duty later tonight?' "'No, sir. I go off at seven. The tone was respectful, all that it should be, and yet the mocking knowledge was still there. "'Better come to our meeting, then,' Copthorne told him in a big, bluff, VIP manner. "'Beaconsfield Hall at eight. It may turn out to be quite an occasion.' I'm saying one or two rather important things. I'm sure you are, sir, said the waiter smoothly, his glance veiled now. But I'm not free tonight. A little group of us meet once a month. You do, do you? cried Copthorne, bluffer than ever. And what do you talk about? Communism? Oh, no, sir. And suddenly the man opened his eyes wide, and Copthorne felt idiotically that he had seen them before. Something very different, sir. Will there be anything else? Thank you, sir. Copthorne was glad to see him go, and yet felt horribly deflated once he had gone. The drinks did not waken Morrow or bring old Jordan back to life. Copthorne made an effort, talked about the party, told them what the PM had said to him the day before gave them two funny stories about the leader of the opposition. This passed the time until the drinks were finished, but even when the other two were laughing, they still seemed dead or asleep. 
Finally, Cobthorne produced a yawn or two, and they left, promising that he would not be disturbed until quarter of an hour before the meeting. He tried to read his notes in the hope of memorizing some of them. They made sense, but not the kind of sense he needed. Most of his attention was elsewhere. He was convinced now that the plump, pale man in the train had played some sort of hypnotic trick on him. You will see, the fellow had said, after he had imposed his will upon him in some mysterious fashion. Of course it was ridiculous to suppose that most people in Leddington were either asleep or dead. There was a trick in it somewhere. Cobthorne told himself, hopefully, that the hypnotic effect would probably wear off very soon. The thought of addressing a large meeting composed of the dead and the sleeping belonged to a nightmare. What a pity this fellow could not be let loose to do his worst among the leaders of the opposition. Partly because he needed another drink, and partly to see what would happen, he rang the bell again. It was answered once more by the very young waiter, and he still seemed to be asleep. Cobthorne merely gave his order the first time, but when the waiter returned with the large whisky and soda, Cobthorne had to say something. "'What's the matter with you?' he demanded irritably. "'Please, sir, what you mean?' stammered the waiter, looking frightened. But in spite of the anxious stammer and the frightened look, he did not seem to be awake. "'You're half asleep,' said Cobthorne severely. The waiter protested almost violently, and there was more than a hint of perspiration on his smooth olive forehead. He was wide awake, he declared, and indeed very busy, serving two whole floors, and Copthorne had to admit to himself that in one sense it was very unjust to accuse the youth in this fashion. There was nothing superficially somnolent about him. Clearly he was anxious to do his duty. Nevertheless, he still seemed, even in his sweat and fear, to belong to some great sleep-walking population. It was this thought that alarmed Cobthorne, after he had let the waiter go. For this was obviously what the fellow in the train had meant, that there existed a point of view which somehow he had imposed on Cobthorne, that saw whole masses of people who imagined they were alive and awake as either dead or asleep. After swallowing his whisky, Cobthorne determined to defy this outrageous standard of judgment. Seizing his notes and jumping to his feet, he compelled himself to imagine that he was already on the platform in the imposing Beaconsfield Hall, still ringing with the applause of an eager audience. "'Mr. Chairman and friends,' he mouthed and swept into his speech the old political hand, the confident minister of the Crown. He cracked a few jokes, and could almost hear the laughter of the crowd, and then made some preliminary points. It was going well. Then he arrived at his statement of the government's new policy, first explaining its general trend, and then coming to the part his own ministry would play. He found it was hardly necessary for him to consult his notes. The familiar phrases came smoothly and effectively. He was eloquent as well as lucid and persuasive. "'I can assure you, my friends,' he thundered silently, flinging out an arm and pointing a forefinger at a mezzotint of two Regency lovers that tried to decorate the opposite wall. And then he stopped, frozen with horror. For it seemed to him then that he had been talking in his sleep.
Miserably he debated with himself. Should he remain in this cheerless room, trying to fight this appalling hypnotic effect, or should he risk everything and go down and eat in the dining-room, where the spell might be broken? Of course, if it was not broken, then he would be worse off than before, almost imprisoned for the evening in this horrible idea. But he could do no more up here, and besides he was hungry. So he rang down to ask for a table, and did some brisk washing and brushing. The main dining-room of the Midland Hotel, Leddington, is a large room, and although its style suggests an uneasy compromise between an Indian palace and a municipal swimming-bath, it is very popular and is nearly always full. Palms in the middle provide shelter for wagons of doubtful hors d'oeuvres and stewed fruit and custard. A trio of distressed gentlewomen play the melodies of Noel Coward and other masterworks of our age. Cobthorn, his brow clouded with political profundities and top secrets, marched to his table, which was nicely equidistant between the palms and the trio. He saw that the place was well filled, but at first ignored his fellow diners and hastily ordered a light meal and some more whisky. For a few minutes he felt much better. It looked as if the sensible world had returned. He knew that he had been recognised, and was careful to look his public self. The brown Windsor came and went. So far, so good. Then he took a hefty swig of whisky, and decided that he could risk giving the other people there his full attention. The result was disaster. Of the hundred or so in that room, apparently only three were alive and awake. A small boy dining with his parents, both sound asleep, an elderly man playing host to three others, all dead, and the woman who played the cello in the trio. Of the rest, waiters and all, about a quarter were dead, and could have been buried, and the remaining three quarters were all eating and drinking and chattering and staring in their sleep. Cobthorne saw all this quite clearly. He noticed, too, that the whole room, together with everybody in it, seemed much further away from him than it would have done at any other time. Part of him did not seem to be in the room, but poised somewhere above it, looking down into it with an appalling clarity of vision, a nightmare experience. If, in despair, he took his attention away, concentrating on himself at the table, Sombre reflections darkened his mind like storm-clouds. His whole career seemed a monument of futility. He and his friends were put into power by voters sleepwalking to the polls. They themselves acted and talked in their long sleep, going round and round, in office or out of it, with their eyes closed. The nations slumberingly demanded peace and moved inevitably in a trance towards war. Every argument for or against every policy appeared to be nothing but the muttering of somnambulists. What was he but the minister of a department lost in a dream? Editors who had not been awake since childhood ordered leading articles to praise or blame him. Cabinets met like victims of some stage hypnotist. There were senior ministers, he realised now, who had been dead for years. To pretend that anything vital was being accomplished was manifestly absurd. 
There had been times before when he had felt tired and depressed, when he had not been able to escape the feeling that nothing real could be done. Now he saw clearly that they were all deluding themselves, that all the fuss and worry and shouting were quite useless, that genuine freedom of action was a dream, that they were all pawns, imagining in their conceit that they were chess players, that the unexpected and terrible ends that were achieved came from moves made in some invisible world. And, a bitter reflection, turning the knife in the wounded ego, the only people who were alive and awake, free of this curse that had overtaken the world, were a few odds and ends of non-entities, a seedy magician mistaken for a crank, an elderly waiter, a boy, a fourth-rate cellist. "'Enjoyed your dinner, Sir George?' asked the head-waiter out of his walking grave. "'No!' and the great man stalked out, his gaze fixed on the glass doors ahead, which were being opened and closed by a page-boy, already sinking into his lifelong sleep. Old Douglas Jerdon and Morrow were waiting for him in the entrance hall. He found himself hating the sight of them. Morrow still seemed asleep, and Jerdon, if anything, seemed deader than before. What a precious pair! But— he had to ask himself, in all fairness, was he much better? Just when he had appeared to be rehearsing his speech in his best style, hadn't he suddenly discovered he was really doing it in his sleep? But later, when he was pretending to be talking or listening to the dead man and the sleeper by his side in the rolls on their way to the hall, he reminded himself that most of tonight's audience would be asleep too, so that there was no reason why he should make a fool of himself. If he were faced with rows and rows of people, all fully alive and awake, who looked at him as that fellow in the train had done, that really would be something to worry about. But the odds, he reflected, cynically, were heavily against there being such an audience at any political meeting. So all he had to do, he decided, as they drove up to the back door of the hall, was to keep calm, try to forget about this dead and sleeping business, and at least give a show of making an important political speech. "'We've a strong platform, Sir George,' said Morrow, out of his party agent's dream. "'Both our local members, and all the chairmen and secretaries of the district branches. They'll all be waiting for you upstairs here, and you've time to have a word with some of them.' Cobthorne grunted some sort of acknowledgment. Most of these people bored him at any time, and tonight, if he was still trapped in this horrible vision of humanity, there would be nothing more than an assortment of the sleeping and the dead, with perhaps a higher proportion of the dead than he had yet discovered. Climbing the steps up to the long room behind the platform, he braced himself to meet them. He could hear the organ thundering and wheezing away, joining the audience in declaring that there would always be an England. And what an idiotic whining song that was, a world away from the old and genuinely confident patriotic songs. There they were, just as he had expected, the dead old men and the sleepwalkers and sleep-talkers. But there was the unexpected twist, just to make things more difficult. This time it was a woman— a plain middle-aged woman, the wife of one of the local members, Frank Marley. Jovial Frank, one of the wags of the party and the house, 
turned out to be one of the deepest sleepers he had met that day. But Mrs. Marley, whom he had never seen before, was a very different matter. Never attends a big meeting, said Frank after the introduction. But she suddenly decided at the last minute she'd come tonight. So you ought to feel honoured, George. Oh, I do. I am. Copthorne heard himself crying. He looked at her. What made you change your mind? She held his glance, fixed it. I was curious to know what you were going to say, Sir George, she told him, smiling. It was the same smile, the same look. In one flash of discernment he realised without a shadow of doubt that she knew. Not only that, but she instantly discovered that he realised she knew. Don't you find Leddington a dead, alive, sleepy sort of place? She inquired, still holding his glance. No, I don't he cried violently, trying to escape her look, at once searching and teasing. Isn't it time we went in? It was. The dead and the sleepers lined up. Copthorne was relieved to be free of the appalling Mrs. Marley, who might have been sent to the meeting by that smiling sorcerer in the train, but, try as he might to forget it, he could still feel, like a cold draught on the back of his head, the influence of her presence. Going on to the platform, he made the greatest effort yet, and for the first minute or two this was a big meeting like any other. The hall was well filled with people who seemed anxious to hear him, for the applause was no mere polite token, but the real heartening thing. The atmosphere was right. The audience was a proper audience. The platform was indeed so much genuine, strong local support. The chairman was that fine old party stalwart, Douglas Jerdon, looking like an elder statesman, and he was himself again, the principal speaker, the coming man who had arrived, Her Majesty's Minister and Privy Councillor, Sir George Cobthorne, with a sheaf of notes on his knee that would soon set the men at the press-tables below enthusiastically scribbling. Yes, for a minute or two, while the clapping continued and old Jerdon rose to silence it, all was well. Then, in that fearful twinkling of an eye against which we have all been warned, the sensible world vanished, and in its place was the nightmare vision, now stronger, more sinister than ever. Old Jerdon, there could be no doubt about it, was simply a talking corpse, making the stiff gestures of a revenant. His place was not the platform, but the vault. All around him the sleepers slept, nodding their foolish heads in a dream, and the dead waited for the graves to open for them. Down below and high above in the balconies, faintly hear-hearing and remotely clapping their idiot hands, were row upon row of men and women who had not been awake since childhood, who in two senseless hours from now would move in a trance out of the hall and go blindly into cars and buses, plunge into the deeper sleep of the night, and then imagine in the morning light that they were really awake. From somewhere behind him came a cough, small and dry, but curiously full of meaning, and he turned, to meet the same look, the same smile. Mrs. Marley, it seemed reminding him again that most people in Leddington, like most people elsewhere, were either asleep or dead. And it was true, it was true, 
and as he turned and stared into the body of the hall, he seemed to see millions and millions and millions all sleeping their lives away, while the world they had no hope of controlling went spiralling down to meet unimaginable disasters. What could he say? What could he do? And now, great pleasure, privilege, without more ado, droned the corpse of Douglas Jerdon, to ask, Distinguished Speaker, Her Majesty's Minister, Sir George Cobthorne. They were clapping again, far, far away out of their dream of living. He was standing. He was moving forward a pace or two. Silence at last. The silence of sleep. The silence of death. Mr. Chairman and friends. Had he spoken yet, or was he dreaming he had started his speech? He was never to be certain. The hall was a buzz that soon became an uproar. The reporters at the press tables, the men and women on the platform, the people in the front rows were jumping up and gaping and exclaiming. For there was Sir George Cobthorne, his eyes glassy in a face like paper, waving his arms like a lunatic and screaming, Wake up! Wake up! Wake up! Thanks for listening. This was a DSB Audio production, narrated and produced by David Sweeney Bear. Visit dsbaudio.com for more full-length audiobooks. If you enjoyed this episode, leave me a comment and let me know what you thought. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast for future episodes and check out the DSB Audio channel on youtube.com. Until the next time, happy listening. Thank <laughs> you.